The Vincast is supported in part by Venus, the iPhone app which recognizes any wine bottle with just a snap of a photo. Keep track of your favorite wines and see what your friends and family who are also wine lovers uh, are keeping track of and, and what they think. Um, this iPhone app that's been developed in Australia exclusively for use in Australia and New Zealand recognizes uh, a label when you take a photo of it and will tell you what the wine is and then you can rate and review it and share it with networks. Uh, that might be with the app itself or you can hook it up with stuff like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's really easy to use. Uh, it also gives you uh, an indication about what you might expect to pay for it and even where you might be able to buy a wine. Um, it's a really fast-growing wine community and um, it's you can follow other wine lovers and professionals like me on there. So just go to www.getvinus.com forward slash vincast, download the app and start snapping away. Basically, Venice is breaking down barriers for people to enjoy wine. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Scarsbrook, also known as the Intrepid Wino. And thank you for tuning in, Vincasters. I uh, hope you've been enjoying some of the recent episodes. It certainly were fun to record. And... Uh, not to mention that we've had some great guests and we've got even more guests coming up who are going to be really, really interesting. So for this week's episode, I invited a guy called Dave Brooks, who is otherwise known on uh, social media as Vino Freakism, which is also the name of the blog that he started several years ago to write pretty much about um, sustainable and natural wines um, from overseas, from Australia. Um, but he is also one of the most sought after wine judges in Australia, having um been awarded Ducks of the Lenham Institutorial a few years ago. So we talked a bit about his background and his uh, philosophies. Um, he's based over in the Barossa Valley, so it's actually the second Skype interview I've had for the podcast. So it was really fascinating, and I hope you enjoy. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining me today, Dave. Uh, how's the weather over in the Barossa? Uh, it's getting warmer, mate. Um, thanks for having me along as well. The um, yeah, a bit windy today. Probably thirty-two-ish, I guess. Just dreading when it's going to be, you know, forty-eight like we've had the last couple of years. But um, anyway, we'll see how we go. So, for those of my listeners who may not be familiar with you, um, I guess um, you're known on the uh, on, on the social media and, and your blog as uh, Vino Freakism, but um, you do a lot of different stuff. But tell me. It, what was your first interaction with wine that kind of set you on the path? I guess sort of having um, my parents sort of push glasses of wine in front of me growing up, um, you know, not from like the Italian sort of viewpoint where kids are drinking sort of wine with like wine watered down, but they'd always like give me a sniff of wine and stuff when I was growing up. But yeah. um, I sort of grew up in, um, in Christchurch in New Zealand uh-huh. um, in a place called Littleton which is the port of, um, of, of Canterbury and sort of spent most of my childhood there. And then my parents moved to, um, inland from Wiper, um, just at north of Christchurch, about an hour north, um, in a wine region there. So I finished off, um, my, my 10 years up there and that sort of, they started working in vineyards and bits and pieces. Wasn't really interested in wine at that stage. Was more interested in, in music and surfing and skiing. So, um, yeah, wine really didn't come into the picture then. Okay. What were you sort of the, the early musical influences for you? 
Oh, I kind of I worked for a heap of bands in New Zealand. Um, some of the you know just touring around New Zealand. I worked for a lighting company. I was a, a lighting designer. Um, some early musical influence. I remember I had a cousin who gave me like a he gave me five cassette tapes. I reckon I would have been about twelve, and it was like um, what was the Station to Station by David Bowie, okay. Exodus Exodus by Bob Marley, wow. um, Led Zeppelin. There's a Led Zeppelin album in there. Um, shit, what were the other two? I can't bloody remember. Um, anyway, they were bloody good. And he said, you've got to play these tapes until I sort of unspool and fall all over the floor. And I just, I did. And that, that was probably my, my earliest, um, sort of musical memories were from, from a cousin of mine. And, um, and I'm still a reggae nut to this day, actually. Oh, okay. And then, and, and so the, the, the musical kind of career got you traveling around, that kind of thing. Did you get the opportunity to sort of like, did wine come into that at all? Well, it did sort of later on. I was more sort of Jack Daniels and beer at that stage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, I was working touring for quite a few bands in, in New Zealand and working for a lighting company in Auckland. Okay. A um, whole lot of big acts had come through as well and I was sort of working as a rigger on those lighting tours for you know bands that were touring like Talking Heads and Simple Minds and a whole bunch of quite big bands that were coming through, um, wow. U2. Um, a mate of mine that I used to work with got picked up by U2 actually and taken off to um, taken off to, to Dublin and started working for them. And then I, I came over to Australia um, in the sort of mid-80s, I guess, got brought over here by a band. Um, Hoodie Gurus came over and did a tour in New Zealand. They ended up dragging me across to um, back to Australia. So I ended up working for the, for the Gurus here for about three years and then went on to work for NXS and a whole bunch of other Australian bands and ended up working for a, a lighting company um, called Light and Sound Design um, out of, well, they had two offices, one in LA and one in um, one in Birmingham in the UK. So I sort of flitted in between those two offices and just worked on all these really big tours. Okay. Um, yeah, did that for, for just under 10 years and just got sick of touring and came back to, um, came back to Sydney um, and um, and just got a job in a bottle shop. It's funny actually, because I remember arriving, arriving in Sydney with the Hoodoo Gurus, and I still had my suitcase with me off the plane, and we went straight to the Clock Hotel, yeah, um, in Surrey Hills. And in those days, it was like this dodgy speed dealing bikey pub, and just full of freaks. It was like the bar scene out of Star Wars. <laughs> and um, and I remember standing in there with my suitcase and having my first beer in Australia, and um, and that was the first place I ended up working in a bottle shop was the Clock Hotel when I stopped touring. Um, I got a house in Surrey Hills, like a share house, and ended up at the the drive-in bottle shop there. And it was just dodgy. There was, um, yeah, it was pretty pretty interesting sort of space to to work in. There was, you know, selling. You know, you walk into the the drive through the cool room in the drive-in, and there'd be like a big stack of stolen video recorders with like a blanket over them and stuff. And it was pretty. It was a pretty dodgy scene in those days. Mm. Um, what were the punters be- drinking back then? Oh, the, they, they were just drinking um, lots of cask wine, lots of spirits. <laughs> used, used to have Brett Whiteley come in every day and buy a couple of bottles of Johnny Walker Red because his studio was around the back. Um, yeah. Sometimes he came in and didn't have any money, so I would give it to him on tick. I was just spewing. I didn't ask for a painting or something. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, just um, the classic sort of brands of the day. I mean, obviously, Stephen stuff like sort of, you know, Lindemann's, um, Douglas Lamb wines were, were pretty big there as well. We used to sell a lot of those. I remember Douglas Lamb I was, you know, sit working in the bottle shop one day and this, this old bloke came in and um, said, G'day, Douglas Lamb. And I said, oh, yeah, just over on the, on the second shelf over there. And he goes, no, I'm Douglas Lamb. I went, oh, shit, sorry, dude. <laughs> uh, too funny. 
Yeah, so that was my first um, entry into wine, basically, and it was kind of a, a weird thing because I'd be working in the in the drive-through bottle shop and um, and then sort of closing the pub down at nights as well. So um, it was a pretty colourful place. Like um, you know, it was run by a guy that was really high up in the maritime services union you know, at that stage, and um, you know Abe Saffron and and all those dodgy sort of colourful Sydney identities were sort of involved in the pub. So it was kind of a a funny scene. But um, yeah, I worked there for quite a few years, and then. Um, ended up applying for a job um, and um, in Double Bay, and we ended up going to Coffers, which um, was in turn bought out by um, bought out by Coles and became their flagship vintage seller store. So I was on the management team there. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, so that's where I sort of started getting um, started getting into wine and into a big way. Um, quite an interesting uh, lineup of people that were sort of working there as well, like sort of John Cuff, who's um, you know at, in charge at Wynark now. He was on the team there, and Jeremy Stockman, who used to be you know obviously very high up in vintage sellers, and is now in charge of Watsons in Hong Kong. He was one of the guys. Stuart Gregor from Liquid Ideas was our van driver. Okay. So um, it was kind of a, a weird crew of people, but it was great fun. And what were the um, the early influences in terms of the wine, um, whether it be particular producers or where the wines are coming from, or people you were working with, or even customers? Oh, we had a we, we were sort of given a lot of autonomy in that store when it first started off, and could basically um, crack open whatever we want. There was um, one of the a guy that worked there called Kevin Hopko, who was sort of in charge of sort of marketing and wine sales and stuff. Um, I guess he was pretty influential on on my drinking habits because he was just constantly cracking open like first growth Bordeaux's, and so we had yeah they just let us like crack open sort of Krug and 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 Dom and like, you know, an 82 Margot or something and have it oh. on tasting in the store. And um, you had these amazing, amazing tastings. So um, I guess working there was where I got sort of, um, I got the initial sort of um, exposure to, to like the great wines. And, you know, there's a, you know, I remember a French guy that I used to work with. We'd go across to the Golden Sheaf over the road and we'd buy something like a, you know, a 91 Rene Rostang, La Landon Carretti and, and smuggle it into the golden sheaf and buy a steak and like drink this bottle of wine with a steak. And it's just like things like that just started getting me into wine. I just got sort of sucked in. Mm. So, um, yeah, once you get sort of sucked into that vortex, it's pretty easy to just keep on. I mean, it's a, a subject you'll never learn, you know, everything about wine. That's what's such a beautiful thing about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, early on, did you um, find some parallels between wine and, uh, and the music? Were you kind of? Did you find the wine appealing because of that? Uh, that your you know, appreciation of that kind of creative medium of music. Yeah, you know, I think that came later on in the piece. Um, you know, like, you know, winemakers like to think they're fucking rock stars, don't they? So, <laughs> um, but I guess later on, I mean, when you start sort of thinking more deeply about wine and you start thinking um, about what makes it tick and stuff like that, I mean, you know, there's only a small percentage of the of the, of the wine drinking public that do that obviously those are that are very engaged with wine as a subject but um when you start thinking about sort of you know major scales and minor scales and you know applying it to wines like major scalers uplifting minor scales melancholy um there's wines certainly sort of fit those characteristics and you know nick mills from from um from ripon in new zealand he's always talks about wines being tonic and he, he talks about tonic as it um as being um, you know, digestive and good for you and, yeah. and, he- and health-giving. But, you know, tonic um, is also, a, you know, a, a scale degree and a diatonic scale and it's a tonal sensor and a resolution st- tone. So you can also think about 
you know, wines having a tonic quality um, in that they're in sort of perfect, perfect, you know, tonal center and stuff like that, you know, balanced. So it's quite an interesting sort of analogy to, to put music to wine. Mm. But then you do it too much and you can go disappear at your own backside, can't you? Mm. Talking, about, talking about that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's better just, you're better off just drinking the stuff. That's what it's about. Yeah, I, I mean, I sort of, sort of, when I was younger, still to this day, um, I'm a big fan of particularly um, film and television and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. like interpreting and finding meaning and stuff like that rather than, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily a, a creative person naturally, but it was something that I appreciated with wine early on was to sort of look at something someone else had created and, and look at the different parts and what, you know, how they put together and then, again, sort of interpreting and finding meaning in it in that way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, in the end, wine's just a snapshot of of both a, a growing season and the um, and obviously the inputs from the winemaker and his sort of out, uh, his outlook on on the philosophy of what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and it can, I guess that sort of can come down to very much in a musical sense to to like improv and stuff like that. I guess with some wines, you can talk about improvisation. Yeah, and I guess there's a certain a certain um, degree of that in in winemaking, but it's just a a really nice analogy, and it's nice to be able to you know if you understand music or if you understand film or if you understand art, it's nice to be able to draw parallels to wine as well, and in that context. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just um, it's just a, a great thing. I mean, you know, just being a snapshot of a of a growing season is just a beautiful thing. I reckon to have in, in a glass. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, and you know, and going back to the musical sort of analogy, it can be you know, you listen to some of the music these days, and it's all just doctored up and full of auto tune. There's a lot of wines out there that are like that as well, but mm. you know, and there's mm. a lot of wines that are just in perfect harmony and, and pitch without having too much input into them. You know, it's um, yeah, it's just interesting. Well, in the same way that you, we're seeing a lot of wines these days that are kind of in. in, in embracing more traditional kind of practices a lot of the really great authentic music that you know is coming out is sort of a real celebration of pioneers back in the you know 60s 70s even 80s and and obviously you know even older whereas you know a lot of the, the manufactured music is just sort of really polished as you say yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. You know, going back to um, going back to. I guess we're not trying to you know reinvent the wheel or anything, but just like paying homage to to people that have come before you and sort of um, try to make wines you know that hark back to to before we learned to make wine by numbers. You know, before we before everyone had a, a wine making degree and was you know and your pH had to be this number and your TA had to be this number and yada yada. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting concept, you know. But when you look at sort of wine, wine's like a, it's like a bell curve, yeah. So it's sort of like at the the upward scale of the bell curve, you've got sort of a wine, you know, a, the grapes ripening, blah blah blah, going through veraison, you know, finally getting to the ripening point up the up the apex of the bell curve. As soon as you snap that sort of cut off that sort of um, bunch of grapes, it goes onto a downhill slide and it goes through goes through um, sort of primary fermentation, malolactic fermentation, then into like acetobacter and then into acid, uh, like vinegar basically Yeah. Um, down the bottom of that bell curve. And we tend to make wines way up the top of that bell curve. We, you know, we sort of do it very reductively and, and we bloody smash them with sulfur and we, 
we clarify them, we find them, we filter them, we bash them into an, an, like a an glass receptacle and get them out to the public. And we're basically bottling perfume. You know, but the further you get down that bell curve, the closer it gets to like a digestive and, and more sort of health giving and more and more tonic, I guess, in the way Nick was talking about it. Mm. Um, and that's where you get those more savory elements. And I think people are starting to make wine further down that downward, downward slope of that bell curve. You know, they're getting all those savory elements in. Um, and then, if, you know, at, there's a point down that bell curve where wines are better with food as well. You know, you, mm. they sort of, they're more balanced and they're more savory and they're sapid and they're just delicious to drink. So, and generally lower in bloody alcohol as well. So, mm. yeah. So, going back to um, those early um, days of your mm. uh, working with wine, um, did you get the opportunity to sort of travel very much and visit wine regions and producers, or had you had much experience before that? Yeah, kind of had a little bit of experience um, when I was touring with bands, just like flitting into into different regions. But um, like I said, I wasn't really interested in wine at that stage when I was touring. Um, it sort of came further on. But um, yeah, I started to, once you get sucked into it, you sort of start traveling around a bit, um, obviously visiting um, regions around um, Australia and New Zealand was the, the first big port of call, I guess. Um, I ended up working at this wine store for... Um, quite a few years. Then I moved to a wine store called Kemenes in Bondi. Mm-hmm. Um, was on sort of the floor there for a while and then ended up in the marketing team. Um, but then I bowed out of there and moved to um, uh, Flinders in Mornington and started working at, um, worked for a few years at Tig Allen yeah. um, with, you know, Kevin and and, um, and Kathleen, Kathleen Queeley. And, um, yeah, it was fantastic down there. I just sort of started studying at Charles Sturt. Well, what didn't really – get deeply into any overseas trips until I um, started working. Uh, we like, I came back from Mornington after working down there for about two years um, and then I started flitting over to Europe and, and farting around in wine regions over there and having a look around. Um, gets to a point, you know, that – well, I'm at, I'm at a point now where I've been to so many wineries that I don't really want to visit wineries anymore. I just want to, like, kick stuff around in vineyards and, and climb up hills and mm. and look around. Um but yeah, done. You know, the last sort of, I guess, the last sort of six to eight years have been pretty extensive. You know, trips every year um, around the place. So yeah, that's one of the great things is getting out there and seeing, you know, and meeting the people that actually make the wines. It's um, it's a really cool thing. At what point um, did you get interested in the particular wines that you uh, really respond with? Well, I sort of I could bit of a leaning towards um i just hate that natural fucking word eh? it just drives me nuts i mean there's a it's probably a better word for it but um you know i like like lo-fi wines that's yeah. probably a good a good you know low for the like low inputs low manipulation um natural i mean the good thing about the word natural i guess is it gets people's backs up um and no change ever ever comes if people don't ask the questions that make people squirm, you know. So I guess natural's natural sort of um, good in in that respect. But, um, yeah, I sort of got turned out of those. A um, couple of sort of trips to France um, and and trying some of, of the wines in sort of wine bars and stuff like that in Paris. But the, the main impetus was like um, a friend of mine, Andrew Gard, who's bringing in some wines um, and he's probably been a driving force in – the acceptance of natural wines um, into Australia, I guess. Um, he was one of the first guys, um, first cabs off the rank, you know, pretty much 
um, went to the Kermit Lynch catalogue and said, I'll have all of those and <laughs> basically brought them over, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, Adventures on the Wine Route is probably one of my favourite books in the world. Sure. Um, and, you know, he's, he's basically read that book and gone, that producer sounds cool, I'll have that. That producer sounds cool. So he's got a pretty snazzy portfolio and, and that sort of got me into those wines. Um, and um, at once I was working at, before I moved to the Barossa in, in 08, um, I was working at Langton's as the Sydney auction manager and um, decided to, to jump ship before um, Woolworths sort of took it over and moved down here. And then the bloody licensing laws changed in Sydney, so all these cool, groovy wine bars bloody opened up and I missed out on all that um, that first sort sure. of flush of, of excitement with all those wine bars. So, mind you, I had plenty of trips going back and forth to Sydney, so I got to to go and make an absolute mess of myself in Wine Library and 10 William Street and Love Tilly and all those sort of places. But um, it was just a shame that that wasn't there while I was working in Sydney. It is interesting that um, with with the, the licensing changes in Sydney um, and a lot of these small bars um, opening up that they really wanted to do something different and, and working with these lo-fi uh, wines or you know, authentic, which still sounds a little bit pretentious um yeah. <laughs> it's another one of those words isn't it yeah um that, that that was the kind of the path they took and they really established a strong identity for themselves oh yeah, yeah for sure no i agree with that totally i mean i guess it's just um it's about that sort of you know small plates and 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 small glasses basically type sort of scenario where you, you're trying all sorts of different types of food, you're trying all these different exciting wines that you don't normally try and, and um, you know, you wouldn't be buying them at a deal like a Boozatorium. They wouldn't be forced back near the, um, near the checkout, you know. Yeah. So you're getting, you're getting access to all these wines that you normally wouldn't try and it just, um, it just opens up this whole sort of um, whole new world and that's what's really exciting. Um, you know, you'd walk into some of these bars and, and just the the atmosphere of in there was just awesome, you know. There's mm-hmm. people that are actually experimenting with with booze, and I think it's just been a, a fantastic thing for for the wine industry, really. And when you, you you look at that, sort of trickles down as well, you know. All these, of course, we had the um, the strength of the Aussie dollar, and we had all these um, new sort of small importers coming up, all these really cool and groovy wines coming into the country. Um, that goes straight to the winemakers as well. The winemakers get access to these wines. They start trying these wines. They start experimenting. Yeah. Um, and that drives innovation. And that's why you find, you know, we've got all these young winemakers around that are just making shit hot booze at the moment. Yep. Um, and um, that's just a really exciting thing for the industry. I mean, we've got, our, you know, classic stalwart brands and, and, and you know, cracking wines. There's more contemporary producers as well. But we've got this undercurrent bubbling away of just these guys that are innovating and experimenting. And that's really exciting. Mm. Um, now, when did you sort of start um, thinking about communication in terms of, you know, writing or, or talking, that kind of thing? Oh, I sort of always, um, I was pretty shitty at English at school. You could probably tell that from reading my blog. But anyway, um, we kind of, I used to noodle around on, on some wine forums, like Australian and overseas wine forums, um, less being a total wine geek. Um, and um, I started one of um, probably one of the early wine blogs, I reckon, in Australia called um, Vinicence. That was years ago, probably, I don't know, 10, probably about 13 years ago. Yeah. 
Um, so that was one of the first blogs around um, and just started noodling around on that. And I think um, I just got contacted by an editor from a magazine and had been reading my blog because, you know, by that stage writing about wines on, on, um, online was kind of a new phenomenon, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and asked me to do some work for a magazine. Always, always, you know, still been interested in, in online communication as well because I like the freedom of it. Yeah. Um, and um, it just seems like a, a better medium for me. And it's like it, it's not so regimented and, and strict in its, in its format. You can pretty much freestyle. <laughs> so um, I kind of like that aspect. Um, and then, yeah, just kept on, kept on doing it. Sort of, I've, I guess I've been writing for magazines since about sort of 2008, I guess. Um, but, yeah, it's just nice, nice, um, a nice outlet to be able to communicate um, and it's you know, it's nice to get feedback from people as well, and to to actually look at your analytics and go, shit, people are reading what I'm saying, you know. Mm. Um, we don't really get much feedback from magazines. You just like put an article in, and it goes out, and you know, it goes out. But you actually get sort of um, you got a feedback loop with with anything you put up on the web. Yeah. Um, when when you started uh, the Vina Freakism blog, mm-hmm. was the idea about sort of focusing in on on these lo-fi wines that you were interested in and, and trying to sort of communicate a little bit more and introduce these possibly harder to um, harder to find wines to to an audience yeah I think so I mean the, the the idea was to was to drill down a bit and and find a niche um, and you know if you're doing any sort of communication I guess you get become more authoritative if you if you drill down into something um, and it just that was Something that I was, you know, there were wines that I was drinking at the time, and they were really exciting me. Um, and I hope that comes across in the way that I write about them. You know, it's a, there's a lot of joy in those wines. Um, the thing is, it's not a, you know, it's it's not supposed to be a platform where I'm critiquing wines. I'm only writing about wines that I I've really enjoyed. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm not burping out a, a sixty word tasting note and a magic score out of a hundred or something. And and you know. Um, like uh, so many, you know, commentators or online commentators, I'm trying to give a backstory and some context as well. Yeah. Um, and trying to tie it in with with some weird imagery and just make it a bit fun. Eh? Just like wine throws up shitloads of barriers. You know, it's it's seen as being really stuffy and and poncy, and and you can you've just got to try and break down barriers yeah. and make people. I mean, the 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 soul purpose of a wine communicator is to make people love wine a bit more um and if you can't do that you you're losing yeah you're not you're not doing your job um Mm. and that's just really important so you just got to break down some barriers and and just try and express the joy of wine on a page and hopefully people will will sort of read your words and get inspired to buy a bottle well the thing that um i admire about you know really good wine communicators is that they're they're also encouraging people to kind of seek out more for themselves and to try different things and really try and hone in on what they like and perhaps why they like it, you know, trying to understand what are the elements of that wine or what are, what are the like a number of wines, what do they have in common that might be possibly why they respond more to those kind of wines rather than just sort of, you know, I'm the expert, um, and just trust me, this is good, this is not kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's just taking people on a journey, you know. It's just quite often if you're going on a journey, you need that first 
push to take the first step, you know. Sure. It's just going you know, to take people somewhere. And, I mean, one thing that I, that I wasn't doing in my blog and I probably should have done was, you know, um, making recommendations if you if you know if you if you like this Jurisson you might like um, you might like this or you might like that you know and give people other options and and then they can they can trot off merrily on their on their journey and take different forks um, but you know that's just something I can build into it I guess and at the um, same time if if they respond positively to something you review like you as you were saying before you have that immediacy of the feedback where people can say, oh, you know, thanks, Dave, I had to try this and, you know, I really loved it. Can you recommend some other stuff? Yeah, no, that's, that's right. I mean, you've got that, um, you've got that facility where you've, you've, you know, you've got that open line of feedback and communication with anybody that's reading your blog and that's a really powerful thing. Um, so that's, yeah, that's really, that's really cool. Whereas, you know, you know, traditional media is a closed loop. Basically, you haven't got that feedback. Whereas, you know, many online media, um, you've you've got that you've got that option, which is a very very cool thing. Mm. And when you made that shift down to the Barossa Valley, uh, mm. what 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 sort of led you to, to to that part of Australia, and what what did you sort of start doing whilst you were there? Uh, I did vintage here a couple of times while I was working um, in retail in in, in Sydney. Um, so I sort of knew quite a few people here and we just, um, you know, had the, the suits were marching through lanterns doing due diligence and, and I was just going, I'm not going to handle this. I don't work very well under hierarchical structures and I knew I'd just like lose my shit. Mm. So, um, just decided to draw up a short list of, of places to go, um, and, you know, made a list up of, of wine regions and just decided to. Barossa, we I knew quite a few people here, and it just seemed um, appealing. So, ended up um, having a having a um, didn't even line up a job or anything. Um, <laughs> but I was I was just having going away drinks at a at a pub in Sydney, and um, while I was having this these drinks, um, Kim Toyster rang me up and went, "I'll give you a bloody job." So that was sweet. So I moved there. Sort of, I ended up pruning for about um, for about five or six weeks, and. And then started working the winery with Kim, and um, was with Kim and Mick for for probably uh, three and a half years, mm-hmm. um, just doing some marketing and and brand manager for them. And it's kind of a very pretty varied job because you know you'd be in the winery over over vintage and and doing the marketing stuff, and also whipping down to Adelaide and doing sales, which I find soul destroying. By the way, I'm not a salesman by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. Um, and yeah, so it was interesting. Um, and then uh, I left Toys now um, a few years back now, and um, just decided to do my own thing. So just do um, a bit of split my time between sort of a, a bit of wine writing for magazines and a bit of marketing for for a couple of wineries as well. So yeah. Um, when you're writing for for magazines, is a mm-hmm. sort of a different approach? Do they generally kind of give you um, something that they want you to write about, or do you kind of pitch some different ideas? Uh, yeah, a bit of both. Um, they'll certainly come to you with with things that they need covered and ask you to be interested in covering it. Covering it. Um, so there's that. But yeah, you pitch generally pitch stories to them. Okay. Um, so now it's the sort of um, or you know last month and and. And this is probably the best time to pitch stories to magazines. Um, you get an idea of what you've got coming up in, in the next year and um, where you might be going and things that might be happening. So, um, yeah, that's probably the time you do it. But, yeah, generally I pitch stories um, and, um, and they get 
yeah, eight on eight by the powers that be. Right. And is that sort of um, where you tend to do a bit more of your traveling these days? Um, still travel fairly extensively. Like I've, I've been hitting the wine show circuit pretty heavily the last um, sort of three years. Okay. Um, and generally I tie in visits um, to wine shows that I'm doing. So, um, you know, if I'm doing the Royal Melbourne show, I'll, I'll spend, you know, three or four days in the Arrow Valley afterwards or, um, or Mornington or something. Um, so I generally try and tack on little bits and pieces in, in regions to wine show visits. Um, and, yeah, Europe um, as well, sort of just basically around what's interesting me at the time. You know, I've got a trip to Europe coming up in May um, and uh, I'm just piecing together where I'm going to be going and what I'm going to be visiting. So... Um, the mainly stories just sort of um, gravitate out of out of those sort of regions that I'll be visiting at the time. How did you um, get involved with uh, wine show judging? Oh, I kind of done a couple before. I did a being an associate at a, the boutique wine awards in Sydney like years ago, probably two thousand and seven ish, two thousand and eight. Oh, okay. Um, and then came to the Barossa, and I was an associate here. Um, in 09 and got involved in a little tiny little wine show called the Marinanga Wine Show, which is like all the wines from the you know the west of the of the Power River and the Barossa. So it's all the the western sort of subregions. Yeah. Um, so I did a few of those. Um, then got accepted into the the Len Evans tutorial um, in 2011. Um, after you know, six attempts of, of of writing in and pleading my case, they finally took pity on me and let me in. <laughs> um, and it did okay great. though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I managed to. It was my sort of Stephen Bradbury moment, I reckon. You know, everyone everyone fell over at the last hurdle, and I just like float, you know, floated through. Mm. Um, this, yeah, I think there was pretty much um, six of us like in in the running on the final morning for the DRC tasting, and and luckily I got quite a few of them right in the tasting, and I just managed to pit people at the post. But I don't know how I did it. We had this. I, when you go to the Atlanta tutorial, you get given an envelope and, and it's got your sponsor and your room key in it. And I managed to get the chairman's suite, which is Len Evans' old suite. And it's this massive room. So that was a designated party room. Wow. Okay. So I was just getting on the last night, we had um, this party with like all, and we were making all these Negronis and managed to kick Andrew Thomas out of my room at like five o'clock in the morning or something stupid. Wow. And then got it like. It's amazing that you managed to kick him out before the night came up. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, Tomo is a stayer. Um, and then, you know, I got an hour of sleep and stepped out of the bed the next morning and stood on like an orange peel from a Negroni and just like fell flat on my ass. And then um, sat there for, for maybe an hour and a half um, just doing praises of sh- uh, tasting notes on um, past DRC tastings from magazines and, and websites and just writing down what I should be finding in and each of these wines and with a shocking hangover right. and, and, um, and then just managed to go in there and, and do really well. So it was pretty lucky in the end, but, um, yeah, it was a, it was a good result. I ended up getting ducks in the end, which was, which was awesome. So that sort of propelled me into the wine show circuit in Australia and pretty much been doing sort of nine or 10 shows a year since then, which is a lot. That's a pretty grueling schedule. Yeah, it is. You know, it's like sort of two and a half months away from home and especially for a poor impoverished wine hack you know <laughs> having having two and a half months away from home not earning any money 
um, is pretty pretty hard going. But not to mention the the toll it's going to take tasting you know hundreds of wines. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they sort of it's getting a lot better. Obviously, they're bringing the the number of wines that you taste in a day down. Um, so lots of shows you're judging between sort of 110 to 130 wines a day, which is totally doable. Like sort of, um, you don't get too um, too fatigued um, with that much. But you know, some shows are still up around the sort of 180 wine mark, which is just ridiculous. So, yep. um, yeah, but it's it's been great. I mean, it's been a great experience. You really um, what you you do learn your strengths and your weaknesses when you're judging. I mean, there's certain certain varieties that you're very good at judging and there's other things that you know you're bloody hope or you're not hopeless but you're not as good at yeah you learn your strong suits um it's been great for um for seeing just like a broad um a spectrum of australian wines i mean you know you look at done the the james halliday chardonnay challenge attached to the yarra valley wine show for the last three years and yeah you know to see you know 700 chardonnays in one spot is pretty pretty amazing Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's been a, been a fantastic experience. Probably, um, I don't think I'll be doing ten next year. Um, got to start sort of winding it back. But um, yeah, you can't sort of keep up that pace for too long, I, I reckon. But yeah, it's um, it's fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of the wine share system across. Um, you know, gets a bit of flack um, from uh, especially on social media. Um, but you know, I think it's a very worthwhile, worthwhile exercise still. Well, it's interesting. I had um, a chat about it recently, and um, sort of talking about ways that uh, I guess wine shows can be best utilised to communicate and educate the consumer, because ultimately that's mm-hmm. who it should be for, and and ways that it can kind of stay relevant, I guess. Um, you know, and, and I know that, like what we talked about, was how that they are doing that, and, and I think, well, like how you've been like judging at shows for a while now, so I'm assuming you've um, adjusted to, for example, the hundred point system that they've now adopted yeah. across the board with the wine shows. Was that a, a, a difficult or a fairly straightforward adjustment? Oh, look, it's a fairly straightforward adjustment. I think some people struggled more than others. Um, you know, I, I, when I first started my first wine blog, I was scoring wines out of 100, so I was sort of used to doing it, I guess. Um, then when I – the last sort of oh, – yeah, quite a few years, I haven't bothered scoring wines because it's just – it just, you know, in retrospect, it seems a pretty silly thing to bloody do. Um, I know it's sort of expected now um, to some in some respects, but um, I think it's just a, a – a silly thing, really, scoring-wise. It wasn't hard to um, – I'd probably much prefer to score wines out of 20. Um, you know, there's less less bandwidth, um, less sort of personal interpretation. Um, you, you're cutting out a few cutting out a few variables um, yeah. in scoring. I mean, I think the main thing for adopting 100 points in wine shows was to communicate to the punters. Um, but now there's such compression in wine scores. You can scoop, see, like, scope, you know, score creep through all the all the big commentators in Australian wines where you're just, you know, it's hardly a wine that comes out that isn't below 92 or 93 or something like that now. Mm. Um, and, you know, 97s and 98s are the, are the bloody norm. Um, and it just seems ridiculous to me that it's got to, to that point. And half of that is, you know, 
there's a there's the whole sort of game of you know giving wines high scores and and getting you know just to stay in business basically the wineries will keep sort of keep sending you on junkets and keep sending you samples and and, and you'll and you'll get more gigs because you're scoring things higher so it's just a, a dodgy you know this dodgy sort of circle but when you consider there were some res- results in wine shows last year where um, it just demeans the scoring scale as well. Like, um, not one to pick on any show, but you know, there was the the Queensland wine show where Lindemann's um, Pinot Gris um, got up and it, and in the communications, you know, it was given like ninety six points. And realistically, you know, a sort of ten dollar bottle of wine at ninety six points possible, but you know, it's probably. Not a fair thing. Yeah, I think one of the recent ones for me that kind of stuck out was, uh, and, it, and it actually then generated a lot, a, a bit of coverage in the mainstream media was mm-hmm. a number of um, Aldi, you know, branded oh, yeah. wines sort of, you know, really doing well. At the, it was, I think it was the National Wine Show. And it's just sort of, it, it just leads to, unfortunately, irresponsible um, reporting where they don't put things in context because it's probably not, it's not easy to put that kind of thing in context in the, the mainstream media, you know, sort of a short form article, you know, you'd, you'd have to go to, to, you know, reasonable lengths to actually justify it and, and that <laughs> kind sure. of thing. And so it's just sort of, it leads to misrepresentation where, um, you know, the average consumer is sort of saying, well, there you go. It just goes to show you that I don't need to spend money to get so-called good wines. I need to spend mm-hmm. 5 or $10 at, at, at Aldi and I can get just as good stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's sort of, I think it's confusing the issue using the 100-point scale more than, more than anything else. Um, but, you know, there's been a disconnect between, between wine shows and the consumer for a, for a while now. Yeah. Um, and that's trying to be, you know, we're trying to rectify it. Um, you know, bringing, I mean, the McLarenville show did a great thing this year about, with, you know, bringing food into the equation as well. I know the Sydney International um, wine show's done that for a, for quite a few years, but that's more of a private sort of show. It's not sort of one of the, you know, and not on the national show circuit, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so they have a regional show. Um, driving that innovation um, is, a, is a great thing as well. And also having, you know, the, the, um, the elders of the of the Australian wine industry, not that, not that I should call Ian Riggs an elder because he'll kill me, but, um, you know, having Riggsy and Brian Walsh and and Hewan and James Halliday there um, judging certain classes and, and holding master classes and, and dinners while the show was on was, was a great thing. And I think, you know, you've yeah. got to draw the public in as well. I personally like to see cons- a consumer panel on, a shows, on shows as well, you know. Okay. Um, because, you know, it, it's pretty meaningless unless, you know, if you're trying to get results out to a consumer, if you haven't got consumers judging the wine, I can't see, um, you know, obviously there's credibility because it's experience from a judging panel, but, um, you know, it'd be nice to have some consumer input as well. Yeah. And, you know, it could be done, it'd be a, a, a great way to connect for, for wineries as well and to get, um, you know, social proof would be to, you know, every winery that enters um, enters a wine show um, gets a a golden ticket, like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. You know, and they get a golden ticket, and that gets put out to their mailing list. And and you know, it's like you know, buy a case of wine and get an entry to to be a judge at the yada yada wine show. Yeah. 
Um, so you're getting buy-in from the from the consumers from that point of view, and then when all the tickets are in, you just draw a panel of of six consumers to judge at the Sydney show and give them a GoPro and and let them rip, you know. Um, so I think that's probably a, a good thing to do as well. And, and classes have got to change as well. I mean, we do judge everything variously at the moment, but they've got to be more sort of um, price sensitive because consumers buy on price more than anything else. Um, so we should be talking about you know, you know, trophies for the best sub fifteen dollar wine um, and stuff like that. Some things that resonate with consumers. Um, but there's yeah, heaps of heaps of things that can be done. But you know, it's um, it's not going to happen in a in a hurry. Um, and there's a, a lot of you know whining about um, the inconsistency of results as well. Mm. But you know. You judge those same wines the next day, and you're going to get different results. It's just a snapshot in time. Mm. Um, it's not meant to be, um, you know, this sort of super accurate, you know, sort of a score or a trophy for a wine. You know, mm. it's just a, a moment of time, basically, and you've got to take it as a moment of time. And you know, it was averaged out over a number of judges, and it came back to a trophy tasting, and and it got up. So. Um, yeah, it's not a. It's certainly not a, a finite science, but you know, it's a it's a thing. But in terms of other ways that you're, I suppose, um, working with you know the, the general education communication of consumers. Mm-hmm. You know, you, recently you've um, been um, traveling around and, and doing stuff. You know, promoting um, the Barossa, for example, and, yeah. and getting involved with promoting New Zealand wine as a as a Kiwi yourself. Yeah. Um, how, how have you found sort of responses um, with those kind of uh, programs? Yeah, great. You know, the doing the Barossa masterclasses for the um, for the good food and wine shows was uh, was fantastic. Um, it was you know vast majority of them were, were sold out, which is um, which is really pleasing and quite receptive. Um, quite receptive audiences as well, like really keen to learn. Obviously, if you're paying money to go to a masterclass, you're going to be receptive, I guess, but mm. um, lots of questions. Um, and same with the New Zealand stuff as well, but the trade um, tastings um, that I just recently did from – I was over judging at the Air New Zealand Wine Awards in, in Auckland and I was just showing the trophy wines from that um, in Melbourne and Brisbane and that was fantastic. You know, the the trade were, were great. Um Lots of questions, just good fun. It's just good getting out there and and talking about wine and and making it interactive as well. There's nothing worse than sort of you know being a, a talking head and just you, you know and especially with trade, you know you can't, you can't tell the trade to suck eggs. You know they, you you want their feedback on the wines as well. Of course, um, everyone's professional and everyone's good at what they do, and you can't think yourself better than anybody else you've um because you're constantly learning as well so um it's great to take on feedback and, and get other people's points of view that's the the, the great thing about any communication mm. um but yeah it was great fun loved it and uh are you still involved with um music at all do you, do you get do you get to see much live music or you know you still no. in touch with with um any of the bands for example yeah no i see i see uh, some dudes from some bands quite often um but music-wise, no, just plot away on my guitar. I live out in Banjo country, so we're on a, a property in the Eden Valley, which is about sort of um, 1,800 acres. Um, so we're in the middle of nowhere, so you don't get too many bands coming past here. <laughs> um, so sit on the porch and play guitar, that's pretty much it, to the to the ducks and sheep. Um, but, the um, 
Yeah, deliverance style, absolutely. Banjo country. Um, but yeah, sort of get to catch up with a, a few guys from from bands. There's a few dudes that are that are into their into their wine. So the Hootigurus came through last year and sort of dragged them around um, around a few wineries for a couple of days, which is great fun. They in the green? Do they do that in the Barossa Valley? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they is just Barnsley keep on. They keep on dragging out all these old dinosaurs that obviously haven't got enough money and they're just like going through the motions to try and pay their mortgages. Um, Hey, I'm taking my dad out to see Bunny (laughs) Bars this weekend, so just watch it. Sorry, bro. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it'd be nice to see some more sort of, I don't know, cutting edge sort of stuff, get out to get out and hear in banjo country, but it doesn't really happen. It's generally um, sort of older established acts that are that are sort of just going through the motions now i guess uh, i don't want to be it's, too cruel it's but. almost like a chicken egg situation i guess because I, I i would think that um wine regions and wine businesses would want to engage with a younger audience but it's yeah. a big risk kind of um inviting uh, a sort of a slightly more modern i guess or relevant dare i say it um act out not not knowing if you're going to be able to sell enough tickets to make it worthwhile yeah, that's true. I mean, the only way for it to happen would be the you know promoter to pre-sell stuff and and get acts out. I mean, so I've sort of would love to do some stuff. Um, there's a couple of nice venues in the Barossa where you could do pretty cool things and then get some cool acts through. But um, I've got enough on my bloody plate. I don't want to be a promoter. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Dave. Um, what's the best way people can um, can follow you and keep track of all the fun things you're doing? Yeah, my blog's um, at uh, vinofreakism.com. I'm sort of vino underscore freakism on, um, on Twitter and at vinofreakism on Instagram. Um, I'm always blathering on about something. So, yeah, say good day. Yeah, but um, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of events uh, in the new year that you'll be um, getting along to. And I look forward to catching up with you myself. But uh, thanks again. No worries, man. Good to speak to you. Thank you very much, guys, for tuning into the Vincast for another episode. Thank you also to Dave for joining me uh, this week. Um, as always, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Intrepid Wino and also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino. Please do come and visit me on intrepidwino.com where you can download and listen to all of the previous episodes of the Vincast. But I do highly recommend jumping onto iTunes or to Stitcher and subscribing to the podcast so you can get the episodes as they go up Um, whilst you're there please do rate and review it really does help me out a lot and uh, i look forward to receiving some feedback but until next time bye